Hello and welcome to episode number 69 of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast has been prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, November 9th, 2009. Thank you for joining us. If you are a first-time listener, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. If you are a frequent listener, thank you for returning. All of our episodes are available online, free of charge, at agroinnovations.com slash podcast. We have many previous episodes online of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, full of information that is useful for gardeners, permaculturalists, food activists, Uh, and people who are just generally interested in issues related to sustainable agriculture and agricultural technology, peak oil, climate change, all of the issues that are very important in our day and age. Today on the Agro-Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Rob Hopkins. Rob is a permaculture practitioner and teacher and author of many books, including The Transition Handbook from Oil Dependence to Local Resilience, and also the founder of the Transition Network. Rob also blogs at transitionculture.org. Rob Hopkins, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Tell us about your background before your involvement in the Transition Culture Movement. Well, uh, I spent many years as a permaculture uh, teacher and designer, involved in uh, eco-village development. So a lot of what I did when I lived in Ireland was based around trying to get planning permission and develop one of the first eco-village projects in Ireland, which we did. So I have um, a lot of background in straw bale building and cob building, uh, gardening, that kind of thing. So one of the things that I was involved in when I was in Ireland was setting up the first two-year full-time permaculture course in the world, I think which also taught uh, alongside permaculture design, uh, woodland, there was woodland management, sustainable building, that kind of stuff. So um, eclectic, I'd say. Now, what are the origins of the transition culture? Well, the transition idea came around, uh, started forming, I suppose, in around 2004, when um, I was teaching permaculture at a college in Ireland and I found out about uh, peak oil. And I started to, uh, I I got my second year students to do a project where they looked at the town of Kinsale where the course was and tried to design using permaculture principles uh, a pathway away from oil dependency for the town. And we spent a long time looking around the world thinking somebody else must have thought about this. Somebody else must be on the case with this already. And we couldn't find anybody who'd even started thinking about it really in any sort of tangible way. So uh, the project that they did was just um, uh, just trying to look across food, energy, housing, building, what that move away from oil dependency might look like if it was based on the idea that you start with a vision of how you'd like it to be and then you backcast as to how you would actually get there. And the resultant plan was something that uh, became quite viral on the internet and it was lots and lots of places started getting rather excited about it. And then later that year, I then moved uh, back to the UK, which is where I was from originally, uh, to Totnes in Devon, and then that was when we started 
uh, an initiative here that wasn't called Transition Town Totnes to start with, but after a year or so we started to call it that. Um, and really that was when we started to design the model. And I think really for me it's like what, what transition is. It's a bit like how in music, you know, a lot of the most exciting innovations in music come when people think what happens if you put this with this you know what happens if you put that kind of music over the beat from that kind of music you get a whole new genre of music and so for, for me really where transition emerged from was trying to design a response to peak oil using permaculture principles in, in the process of developing this you have articulated a 12-step approach what is this 12-step approach and how exactly does it work? Well, it's, there, there are 12 of them largely by accident, but actually I quite like the, the thing that it's, it's like an addictions model because our relationship with fossil fuels in the West is such, a, such an addictive and such a dependent relationship. Uh, but that came about because after we'd been doing stuff here in, in Totnes for a while, we got people from other communities getting in touch saying, what are you doing and, and, and how do you do that exactly? And we had no idea really because we had very much made it up spontaneously on the hoof as we'd gone along really. And it was a kind of a, a, a distilling of a very eclectic inspirations from psychology and environmental activism and uh, you know, a whole range of different uh, disciplines. So we started just pulling together what some of those ingredients were that, 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 that underpinned it uh, based on what we've been doing in Totnes. So the first one is um, forming a steering group and designing its demise from the outset, which is based on the idea of trying to get away from groups just getting stuck in the fact that they're a group but that it actually designs for its own evolution uh, as the process goes along. And then it moves into uh, awareness raising. Uh, and a lot of transition groups spend their first year or so doing a lot of awareness raising because really what transition groups act as is as a catalyst. It's not a process that comes in with all of the ideas already in a little bag and sort of and, and takes them all out. It's really a process which is about catalyzing the community to design its own response. So that awareness raising stage is really, really important. Uh, then there's all around laying the foundations about networking with other organizations that are already there because it's, you know, the chances are you're not going to be the first organization that ever thought a green thought in the history of the town. Then, uh, then there's having what we call an unleashing, which is the kind of the launch event. Uh, it's designed to be a celebration of the, of the place and of the, of the local culture and in such a way that designed to be the evening people will look back to historically as the point where it all began. Uh, then groups start to form around specific subjects like energy and housing, and that brings out the people who are really passionate about that subject because transition is designed to be a process driven not by guilt and, uh, and despair and angst, but rather to be driven by what it is that people are really passionate about and what really fires them up. Then it moves through things like uh, using open space, which is a really good way of um, getting large groups of people together to, to, to brainstorm collectively, uh, starting practical projects going so it doesn't just remain as a sort of uh, theoretical thing, but it actually starts to have manifestations. Reskilling people, we use this term of great reskilling because I think we have become the most useless generation in history uh, in terms of skills. Starting to work with your local government, which lots of transition groups are doing very effectively around the country. Uh, honoring the elders, as in we do quite a lot of work around oral history, 
which I think is really important, that thing of looking backwards as well as looking forwards. Uh, then there's a let it go where it wants to go, which is really when you start this process, you have no idea where it's going to go and what you're going to end up with. And so designing into it the flexibility to be open to, uh, to, to what the people who actually start driving it forward want to do is really important. And then the last one, the 12th step, is... is uh, about creating an energy descent plan. And to go back to permaculture terms, uh, I think really what a transition project is, is, uh, is a community design project. So it's basically the design of how this place could be in a lower energy future. And then an energy descent plan is in effect your, your design document. So it's a plan B for the settlement, which um, looks at food, energy, housing, education, medicine, a whole range of different things through that lens of what could it be like here if we embrace this as an opportunity and how are we going to get there? What are some of the pitfalls that uh, you want? If someone's listening to this and saying, that's a great idea. I really want to start doing that and I want to look more into the 12 steps or perhaps they've already gotten gotten started. Um, now, I'm sure you've seen this process in its different stages in various different contexts. What are some of the pitfalls that come up again and again and what do you think people need to be aware of as they go into this process or if they're already into this process so they can uh, help smooth those pitfalls over a little bit? Um, I think some of the pitfalls revolve around um, whether people have any experience of working in groups with other people. We've become such an individualistic society that actually a lot of the skills about just listening and uh, being being considerate of other people's opinion and actually just working with other people are things that we've lost, uh, although they're eminently learnable skills. So uh, in the transition training that we've developed, uh, you know, there are certain things that are very important trainings you can get at quite early on in the in the process, which can make an enormous difference. Um, I think, I mean, there are issues sometimes around around finance about the fact that these initiatives are driven purely by volunteers. But my sense is that is that you know, money um, is never a substitute for enthusiasm, and you'd rather have volunteer enthusiasm any day than money because you just can't buy that. But you do often kind of reach a point in the process where actually money is, is going to be very useful. So uh, funding for this kind of thing is very useful. Um, other kind of pitfalls, I suppose, is, is burnout as well. Because sometimes people, you know, a lot of people do this in their spare time around having a job as well. Uh, and so one of the sort of antidotes for that, I think, is is designing into the process. It's something which environmentalists have been terrible at for a long time, I think, which is designing into the process time to celebrate and acknowledge what everyone's been doing, really. I mean, if the process isn't fun and it doesn't feel historic, then we're doing something wrong, I think. And I think in the best examples we see of transition around the place, you know, there, there really is that sense of people collectively making history together, which is how it should feel. Now, do you feel that some of the things that you described as pitfalls, one of the things that I feel personally is that one of the great outcomes of this could potentially be, uh, you know, business models for small businesses, uh, small entrepreneurs or community-based organizations or cooperatives, what have you. Uh, local trusteeships, 
where actually uh, by providing a valuable product or service to the community or or to the larger region, uh, some money can actually start to flow through that organization as it provides a service that is useful in the transition. Uh, what are your thoughts about that as being a good way to maybe uh, mitigate some of the effects of these pitfalls? Um, I think one of the things that's going to be the key over the next 10 or 15 years is the ability of communities to invest money into themselves. And the relocalization process isn't going to come around by accident. It takes a lot of intentional design, but it also takes the creation of the institutions who were able to do that. And so whether transition initiatives themselves uh, in effect become a relocalization agency, become a social enterprise which is dedicated to uh, funding and enabling uh, and creating livelihoods from the process of relocalization, or whether the role of the transition initiative is to inspire and train other people to do that, uh, isn't clear yet, and I imagine will be different in different places. Um, but I think uh, I think the social enterprise model brings brings a lot to transition in terms of transition initiatives being able to uh, stand on their own feet financially. Um, and uh, that's, I think, where, where the movement is at now, really, is, is, is looking. That's one of the things that's really being looked at in, in detail is, is how do we make that step across and, um, uh, you know, work with business, work with local government and actually become, uh, acquire the, the appropriate skills and the appropriate models to, to enable that. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Woody Tash and the Slow Money Institute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are uh, talking about very similar, very similar things. Now, let me ask you what yeah. what you mentioned in the twelve step approach. I believe the final step is energy distant action planning. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that and what that is? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it's something that uh, the, the the first version, the thing that we did in Kinsale, was very much a kind of student project, and we made it up as we went along, and we really didn't have a model to work from. Uh, over the last year and a half here in, in Totnes in Devon, so Totnes is the first transition initiative in the UK, and so we're the first ones who've reached that stage of uh, trying to do an energy descent plan. So as I said before, it's really something which is based around a community visioning process, uh, based on assumptions around peak oil and climate change. You know, it's not just an open thing that says, hey, everybody, what would you like Totnes to be like in 20 years' time? You know, and people would come up with, well, we want to have hoverboards, and we want to have a, you know, we want to have a McDonald's everywhere, and we want to be able to fly to the moon on holiday. You know, it's really based within the parameters around peak oil and climate change, and saying, you know, we need to, uh, we need to design a way through that. You know, so it's, it's it's setting a question, it's setting a challenge to the community. How are we going to adapt and thrive in response to this particular challenge? Uh, and then there's a the uh, the process that we ran was uh, lots of community workshops on different themes, different subjects, starting with visioning and then working backwards in terms of how we're actually going to get there, involving lots of local organisations. Uh, artists, uh, school children. Uh, it also contains some quite um, uh, powerful uh, 
research. So we have a, 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 some research that we did called Contactless and District Feed itself, which was an attempt to quantify the degree to which the area would be able to meet its own food and fuel needs from its surrounding land. We have an energy budget for the area as well, which nobody had ever done before, and the degree to which renewables could meet local demands. Um, and we did a survey as well of 230 houses in the area as a way of establishing uh, um, opinions on all of these different things. And um, we've also developed what we call resilience indicators, which nobody has ever done before, which uh, is a way of measuring the degree to which the community is moving towards uh, the resilience that we're talking about. And in many ways, the way we think of an energy descent plan is a story. It's not as though the community is going to pick it up and work through the timeline in it step by step by step by step, uh, although hopefully you know some of that will come to pass. But really what it does is it tells a story of how the community could do it, which will uh, in turn engage and stimulate hopefully uh, the community to you know to, to get involved and, and, and add bits to that story there there's a a book that charles eisenstein has written called the ascent of humanity uh, are you familiar with charles eisenstein's work no i'm not no. well let me read to you a quote from that book charles eisenstein writes like an alcoholic whose resources of goodwill money pawnable assets friends and credibility are almost exhausted our way of life is on the verge of collapse we continue to scramble, applying new technological fixes at greater and greater cost to alleviate the problems caused by the last fixed. The addict will keep on using until life becomes completely unmanageable. Ecological awareness, localism, green, de green design, herbalism, community currencies, ecology-based economies are all like the drunk's moment of clarity on the way down. They will not so much save us as serve as the seeds for a new way of living and being that, will, that we will adopt after the collapse. Indeed, they will all come naturally as a matter of course, if there is anything left at all. What is your response to Eisenstein's characterization of something like the transition culture, culture as the moment of clarity of an alcoholic culture? Uh, that's, a very, that's a very nice quote. That, um, the, the, the only thing that I would disagree with that is there's a very interesting debate that's been happening on the website that I do around a piece that Alex Stefan at World Changing wrote recently um, around this notion of uh, this interpretation of collapse and the inevitability of collapse. Um, you know, is that there are some people who come from a, a perspective of looking at peak oil and climate change who argue that. Uh, there, that an inevitable, or that, that an, an impending uh, severe collapse is an inevitability. Uh, and there are others like myself uh, who would argue that actually what we're talking about is, is energy descent. This term energy descent is really important, I think, because it's about, if you imagine the petroleum age, the fossil fuel age as being like a mountain that we currently stand on the top of, uh, I think what we're designing for is uh, that, that actually collapse is always a possibility. It's like the ghost of Christmas future uh, from a Christmas carol. You know, it's something that could come to pass, but not necessarily. And my sense is that if we can apply our common sense and creativity and passion, actually we can uh, design 
an energy descent. We can design a, a positive uh, and productive way back down the mountain, um, you know, uh, towards a path of contraction, towards a path of, of some more simplicity, uh, more localization. But it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, that actually, if you're dealing with somebody who is an alcoholic and who is a drinker, uh, yes, you know, sometimes uh, what gets people out of being an alcoholic is waking up in the gutter and all their family have abandoned them and in effect their life has collapsed. But actually some people uh, can actually pull out of it sooner than that uh, and don't need such a, uh, an extreme um, uh, situation. And so the only thing that I would disagree with him, I mean, I, I think that it's actually a case that, yes, that things like localism are the things that the culture will turn to and embrace because uh, they, they will see that that's, that's where the future is and that's where, and it actually ultimately is what makes people happier. And uh, although we've had economic growth for the last however many years, it hasn't been accompanied by social growth. You know, economic growth hasn't been accompanied by people feeling more skilled, more happier, more relaxed, more connected with other people, uh, and uh, uh, so that's that's where I would disagree with him. I think we're talking here about energy descent rather than a, a, an inevitable collapse. So you so you don't agree? I mean, he he basically says the addict will keep on using until life becomes completely unmanageable. That's is that the point of disagreement? Yeah, I mean, my sense. I mean, he may well be right. Uh, but uh, I don't think that that's necessarily a, a given. And certainly the hope of the transition movement is that actually, uh, I mean, one of the tools that is used, that, that, that we use in some aspects of transition is something from addiction studies, which is called motivational interviewing, which is a very interesting way of working with people in addiction. One of the insights from that is that, um, you know, the assumption is that people who are in addiction only stop when things get, become utterly catastrophic. But actually, in motivational interviewing, it's, they say that change comes about when people's core values uh, and what they're doing become such, reach such a degree of discrepancy with each other that they just can't do it anymore. And so my sense is that what transition is trying to do is to try and create that sense of discrepancy. You know, that people want their children to be happier than them, to have better life than they are. But if we continue like we are, that's not going to be the case. So maybe a change in direction, uh, which actually speaks to those values, we can turn this around before that collapse uh, becomes a, a, a reality. Yes, I wonder... One of the things that I, I thought about as you talked about getting people together to talk about these issues, much of some of the fundamental premises of energy descent are non-starters in the consensus corporate culture. How have you addressed that or how, how have you seen people react to that or respond to that? And have you actually seen that to be the case or... There are a lot of changes going on now. Perhaps people are more receptive to an alternative vision of the future. My sense is, from the work that I've done talking to people in organizations and in local government and in national government sometimes, is that uh, people in those positions find themselves really, really stuck because they have um, uh, the model that they have promoted for so long 
of, of, of economic growth and uh, globalization and so on and so on is really, really coming unstuck. Uh, but it's very, very difficult still for people in, the, in those positions to uh, articulate for or push for anything else. Uh, the economic uh, situation over the last uh, year uh, has been very helpful with that. But I often find a lot of the time if you go into organizations uh, that people there are really glad for the space to be able to talk about these things and to be able to look at the possibilities and the opportunities that emerge out of this. And so transition groups, I think, are doing really, really important work in asking questions that, that those organizations often can't do. So. Uh, Stroud, for example, is one of the longer established transition uh, initiatives here in the UK. They've been doing a lot of work with their local council. In effect, they wrote their local council's food policy and uh, the deputy head of the council there said if transition Stroud didn't exist, we'd have had to make them up. Um, and I think that's what we're starting to see now is actually not you know, sometimes people say, but don't you get loads of resistance? You know, doesn't sort of somehow the establishment try and uh, 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 sort of uh, damp, dampen transition down or something? Actually, it's, it's very much the other way around. I think I think we're seen as uh, asking questions that, that really need to be asked and coming up with with, with answers that that, uh, that they struggle to do themselves. That concludes the first part of my interview with Rob Hopkins who is a blogger, permaculturalist, and founder of the Transition Culture Movement. If you want to learn more about Rob Hopkins, about transition culture, about starting a transition movement in your own community, then I strongly recommend that you visit Rob Hopkins' website, which is transitionculture.org. Now, of course, I will link to that in the show notes for this episode of the Agro-Innovations podcast, so that you can visit Rob's website and get more information. He also uh, is a blogger, and he up updates his blog regularly, uh, and that blog has quite a lot of participation. So I strongly suggest, if you, if you aren't already checking out Rob Hopkins' blog, to do so. Um, and that is, again, at transitionculture.org. Now, this is the first in a two-part interview with Rob Hopkins. The second part of this interview will be uh, published next week, and this first part of the interview deals more with what transition culture is, uh, how one can get started, where you can find some resources, everything that we have already talked about with Rob, and now the next installment of the Agro-Innovations podcast, that will be episode number 70, We'll talk about uh, the political nature of transition culture, or perhaps, better said, the apolitical nature of transition culture. And I strongly encourage that you tune in for that. Uh, that will be next Monday, which will be November 16th, 2009. So keep your eyes open for that. I'd like to thank, uh, actually, KMO of the Sea Realm Podcast, who drew my attention to the quote by Charles Eisenstein in his book, The Ascent of Humanity, uh, where Charles Eisenstein talks about the moments of clarity of a, an, an addict-type society. So KMO, as always, thanks for uh, putting my attention to that. The comment thread on the Agro-Innovations podcast has been a little bit more lively as of late, 
And I'd like to thank the folks who have been participating in that, especially um, the past few episodes. And I'd also like to encourage people, if you are listening to this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast and you have something to contribute, then please go to agroinnovations.com slash podcast and uh, click on the comment thread for this episode of the podcast. You can leave it a comment there uh, anonymously, and there's no registration required. It is a good place to generate some debate and dialogue about this or any other episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast. And I must say, uh, I really do appreciate those comments, and uh, some of the comments have really opened my eyes to other people's perspectives on some of the issues that we are talking about. And if you feel like it's important for you to chime in, then please do so. I have had people uh, message me on my Facebook page, and while I do appreciate that, uh, it is it is always nice to see that comment thread on the Agro Innovations podcast page be lively. Now, if you are a, a frequent commenter, then your comments will not have to go through the moderation procedure, which is just where the moderator, who is myself, goes through and approves that comment, makes sure that it's not spam or anything inappropriate, and publishes it. Once you uh, have been approved once or a few times, then your comment will should just automatically appear. And as I said, it's it's pretty simple to go there and comment. There's no fuss. There's no registration required. So, again, I just strongly encourage you to do so. And also, if you are a first-time listener to the podcast, uh, I know that Rob Hopkins has quite a few people who follow his blog, and I'm sure some of you are listening to this podcast. Uh, I would strongly encourage you to get in touch with me if you have anything that you would like to see on this podcast. I'm very amenable to uh, interviewee suggestions. Uh, Listeners of the podcast have sent me in the past people who they think I should interview, uh, frequent listeners. Uh, Some people have gotten in touch with me and said, hey, why don't you interview me because uh, I'm doing work in this field. Um, An example of that is Nelson Lebo who was in episode number 67 of the Agro Innovations podcast, and he actually heard our endorsement of the Kunstler cast and got in touch with me uh, to talk about his work in permaculture as a strategy for education in secondary schools. And also, uh, last week's episode, which was episode number 68 with John Perlin, uh, John had heard episode number 66 of the podcast, which discussed his, his book, A Forest Journey, uh, the role of wood in the history of civilization, and he got in touch with me and said, hey, you know, I'd like to be in on that conversation. So he was the guest in the previous episode, which was episode number 68. I always appreciate uh, those kinds of discoveries of people who have something to say about a specific topic. So please, if you have a recommendation for a show, please send that along. And you know, many of the other previous shows, for example, the Coalition of Amokali Workers, which uh, was a was a fairly recent episode of the Agro Innovations Co- podcast as well, an interview with Gerardo Reyes talking about the labor movement and agricultural workers. Uh, that was under recommendation by Mike Moon, who actually uh, hosted an episode of the Agro Innovations podcast called Permaculture in the Savannah. 
this effort is a community effort, and I really appreciate it when people do participate. Agroinnovations is on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations. All episodes of the Agroinnovations podcast are broadcast via Twitter. I put out a little tweet with a link to the most recent episode of the podcast. And if you are a frequent user of Twitter, if, if that's how you prefer to get your information, then you can follow Agroinnovations on Twitter and you will be notified once an episode of the Agro-Innovations podcast has been published. Also, you can follow me on Facebook. Uh, Frank Aragona is my name on Facebook. And you can also subscribe to the Agro-Innovations podcast via iTunes. There's a link for that uh, on the left-hand side of the Agro-Innovations podcast page. You can subscribe to the Agro-Innovations podcast via an RSS feed. And you can subscribe to the comments thread for the Agro-Innovations podcast. So there are many ways for you to get updates on on the podcast, and everybody has a different way of doing that. Some of you have Google pages that, um, you know, have a reader, or some of you use something like bloglines.com. Those of you who do do that are fairly uh, savvy in using RSS feeds. So all that is already set up for you on our uh, podcast page for you to use uh, as you will. I'd like to conclude by reminding you that this and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons share-alike attribution 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro-Innovations podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.